I've seen a lot of shit that people have not seen. I see a world in America that makes me want to cry. We are being lied to by the government from every single corner of the world. The CIA provides information which is deceptive and manipulative. The government provides information which is manipulative and deceptive. So if you ask me, for example, what my position is on anything, how the fuck would I know? Because I don't have any information that is real. What's up, everybody? My name is Athena, and you're here to listen to Vanished in the Valley. The words you just heard were spoken by John McAfee, obviously before he was suicided, which seems to have happened yesterday in a Spanish prison, right after it was announced that he was to be extradited to the United States. So there are all kinds of conspiracies popping up right now about his death. Some people, like the Spanish prison authorities, are saying it was suicide. And a lot of other people are saying he was suicided. So after his death, on his Instagram account, the letter Q appeared. And some people are taking this as evidence of a dead man switch. And basically what a dead man switch is, say you have information on someone, a government, a corporation, whatever, and this is dangerous information. You can basically put out there that, hey, if anything happens to me, I have X, Y, and Z programmed to go down to where this information will be released. So some people say that's kind of insurance policy and other people say it's very fucking dangerous to fuck around with a dead man switch. So I'm just going to kind of go into the background of John McAfee, kind of tell you some of the conspiracies that surround him. We are also going to talk about the Pentagon papers that are supposed to be released tomorrow about unidentified aerial phenomena, aka UFOs. So I'm sure we'll get to some other bullshit as per usual, but for now, sit back and get ready for this. So a little background on John McAfee. He was born September 8th, 1945, so he was 75 when he died yesterday. And he was an American-British computer programmer, businessman, and two-time libertarian presidential candidate. So, in 1987, he wrote the first commercial antivirus software, founding McAfee Associates. He ended up resigning in 1994 and sold his remaining stake in the company. So, fast forward a few years, and McAfee actually becomes the company's most vocal critic. He urged consumers to uninstall the company's antivirus software, which he characterized as bloatware. (laughs) He also disavowed the company's continued use of his name and branding, a practice that has persisted in spite of a short-lived corporate rebrand attempt under Intel ownership. So in 2007, McAfee was worth about $100 million. During the financial crisis of 2008, 
he is reported to have like a huge plummet in his fortune. So his personal and business interests include smartphone apps, cryptocurrency, yoga, and recreational drug use. <laughs> he resided for a number of years in Belize, but returned to the U.S. in 2013 while wanted in Belize for questioning on suspicion of murder. So he was a political activist. He, like I said, was a Libertarian Party nomination for the president in 2016 and 2020. In October 2020, he was arrested in Spain over U.S. tax evasion charges. The feds brought criminal charges and civil charges, alleging he failed to pay income taxes over a four-year period. So, basically, it was right after Spain authorized his extradition to the U.S. that he was found suicided. And something that's kind of eerie is... Three days before this apparent suicide, his wife had warned that the authorities were determined he would die in prison, literally three days before this reported suicide. And I don't know why, but all of these like news articles, anything that mentions Janice McAfee, his wife, have to like throw in there, she's a former sex worker. Like, that's fucking supposed to mean anything. Shut the fuck up. She also claims that his honesty is what got him in trouble with corrupt governments. And you can actually see those posts on Twitter. She did it on Sunday. This is exactly what she wrote. I know John is an extremely polarizing individual. Believe me, I know this better than most. But I also know, as well as any of you who follow him on Twitter, that he's always been honest about who he is. Always. Sometimes too honest sometimes sharing more than any of us care to know about him. John's honesty has often gotten him in trouble with corrupt governments and corrupt government officials because of his outspoken nature and his refusal to be extorted, intimidated, or silenced. Now, the U.S. authorities are determined to have John die in prison to make an example of him for speaking out against the corruption within their government agencies. The media continues to vilify him per their narrative, and there is no hope of him ever having a fair trial in America because there is no longer any justice in America. So like I said at the beginning, John McAfee claims he had dirt on those in power and threatened to finally expose the truth if he is jailed or dies. Now, both of those have happened. I mean, to be fucking fair, McAfee does have a record of making mischievous false statements on social media. And, you know, he's definitely a fucking eccentric character. But this guy has literally been on the run for years. And like I said, he claims he has a dead man switch set up to spill untold dirt on unnamed people if he were to die or disappear mysteriously. In an initial cryptic tweet, he wrote, People ask why I do the things I do. An act by itself is incomplete. It's the reason for the act that completes it and provides the real information. He then added, I neither fear death nor run from it. At my age, it sits on my shoulder as a constant companion. It makes me fearless. So I guess in the next few days, we will find out if there is this kill switch, dead man switch, whatever you want to call it. I do know, like I said, after his death, a letter, the letter Q, appeared on his Instagram account, which then Instagram and Facebook 
immediately shut down both accounts. So that's where we are. We've got a libertarian two-time presidential candidate suicided in a Spanish prison. And we also have him literally making a post saying, if it's ever said that he killed himself, it is false. He has his wife three days ago making accusations that the authorities want him dead in prison. So as you can see, just with all this stuff, there is a lot of murmurs in the conspiracy corners of the internet. So I don't know. We'll see what happens with that. I'll definitely keep you guys updated. So now we're moving on to this unidentified aerial phenomena report. The Pentagon has until tomorrow, June 25th, well, today, <laughs> June 25th, to release this report basically detailing in an unclassified manner what they know about UFOs. And uh, I guess a uh, New York Times got some sort of like a leak, quote unquote, sneak peek, talk to top authorities, some bullshit like that. And uh, I don't know, I'll let you kind of know what the New York Times reporter is saying this, you know, going to be about. But I don't know, like I said, the report's not actually out. So let's go back to the beginning. This is December 2020. The Trump administration signed 2.3 million, sorry, 2.3 trillion COVID-19 relief bill that included a mandate for the Pentagon and intelligence agencies to file a report detailing their findings on UAPs, also known as UFOs. So, according to the directive from the Senate Select Intelligence Committee, it included in Annual Intelligence Authorization Act. The report has to be delivered within 180 days of signing the IAA with the deadline as of tomorrow. So, right now, I'm getting a lot of this information from visiontimes.com. They have an article that came out couple weeks ago. There's not much actually like in the last week or so being released anywhere. But uh, Louis Elizondo, who is the former head of Pentagon's AATIP, which is the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. <laughs> and he's a whistleblower. He's enthusiastic that the organization has finally acknowledged the reality. Elizondo, who signed a lifelong non-disclosure agreement with the Pentagon in 2017, stated in an interview with the New York Post that authorities are now looking to gain more clarity into the UFO issue by asking harder questions. Elizondo gave a couple of reasons why the national security officials haven't actually told the public anything about the UAPs. He's saying they felt that it made them look inept. They felt in some cases that it challenged their philosophical and theological belief systems. They just couldn't process it. He went on to say there seems to be a very distinct conjurency between UAP activity and our nuclear technology. That's concerning to the point of where we've actually had some of our nuclear capabilities disabled by these things. There is absolute evidence that UAPs have an active interest in our nuclear technology. 
So these fucking UFOs have actually gone around and buzzed our nuclear capabilities, whatever the fuck that means, and were able to disable it? Holy shit. If they're able to disable it, wouldn't that also mean they would be able to activate it? Hmm. Elizondo kind of went on this little press conference situation thing, and he kind of described some of the qualities that he says can only be described as alien. For example, the vessels have been identified traveling around 11,000 miles per hour, and they make abrupt turns, defying our current understanding of science. State-of-the-art jets traveling at the same speed would require half the state of Ohio to make the same turn. He goes on to describe vessels capable of flying between 50 feet and 80,000 feet above Earth, even traveling underwater with absolutely no change in performance. And I think a lot of these videos coming out filmed by the Navy are these, you know, they're the UAPs or whatever, and these fucking things, I think I actually talked about it a couple episodes ago, they literally like slam into the surface of the ocean and don't disintegrate on impact. I don't know what fucking kind of metal they're using or maybe like a force field situation, but any technology we have, that shit would be in a million pieces across the ocean, but not with these things. So I guess some of the vehicles lift off in a manner that engineering experts cannot even begin to uh, understand, let alone describe. Despite the fact that some of the vessels lack control services, wings, signs of propulsion, and service rivets, they somehow fly. Some of the UFOs are able to pull up to 700 G-forces. Current day advanced aircrafts can only withstand 17 G-forces before basically just getting pulled apart. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there has been a huge spike in, I guess, reports coming out in the mainstream media. The same motherfuckers that would ridicule people and be like, oh, this is trailer park white trash motherfuckers that are talking about getting anal probed. Just being super typical fucking snobby, pretentious assholes acting like this shit could never possibly happen. But now they're all over it. Now, Anderson's fucking white-haired Cooper is talking about it on his little CNN show. So it's like, okay, why all of a sudden is the mainstream media not being so fucking 16-year-old girl on a high school fucking playground being a twat? So what I was describing earlier about these uh, crafts being able to just like slam into the surfaces of the ocean or water or whatever and not disintegrate on impact, apparently there was a Freedom of Information Act request done by Anthony Bregelia. And he determined that the UFO material is actually memory metal called nitenol. So Anthony Bregelia was interviewed by the Sun newspaper, and he said the inclusion of the advanced technical reports on the nitenol is curious. Nitenol is a shape memory alloy that remembers its original shape when folded or crunched and snaps back seamlessly and instantly. This memory metal characteristic was reported by many witnesses at the Roswell incident. Some researchers actually believe this test report from this material 
was actually from the 1947 Roswell incident. Now, if you are expecting any information about the Roswell incident to be released in this report tomorrow, you are going to be a bit disappointed. So, kind of like a summary of this report, of the sneak peek of this report, is the Pentagon says that UFOs are the real deal, but they don't know what they are. And they're swearing up and down that it's not some secret American military program, which I'm not so sure, I believe. So kind of rundown, according to hotair.com, U.S. intelligence officials found no evidence that unidentified aerial phenomena observed by Navy aviators in recent years were alien spacecraft. However, the sightings do remain unexplained in a highly anticipated government report. Like I said earlier, they're saying the vast majority of incidents documented over the past 20 years did not originate from any American military or other advanced U.S. government technology. Huh. I don't know. They also say many of the 120 plus sightings reviewed in the classified intelligence study from a Pentagon task force were reported by U.S. Navy personnel, while some involved foreign militaries. So, this is all according to the New York Times. They're the ones saying they got the sneak peek top government official, but uh, not really much was said in this sneak peek release or whatever the deal is. I am uh, kind of anticipating this. I've been waiting for it geez, since we found out this was actually going to happen like months ago. So it just, I mean, like I said, it doesn't sound like they're about to fucking whip out alien bodies from the Roswell crash or anything like that. It sounds like it's going to be like total typical, like government fucking, it's going to be like cardboard, eating fucking cardboard. You want some KFC mashed potatoes? That's what this report's about to be like. So, I'm not going to get too excited, but if there's some crazy fucking breakthrough information that the New York Times wasn't able to bamboozle out of this quote-unquote highly positioned authority in the U.S. government, then I might do a little breakthrough bonus episode just to kind of go over it and see what the deal is. So, because we got a lot of shit going on. So, you know, uh, that whole building collapse in Florida today... People are actually saying that was done to kind of get rid of information John McAfee had, I guess, hidden about these uh, government officials that he kept threatening to release. So I don't know. I'll keep uh, watching that story and seeing what people are finding out. So now we're going to kind of change gears a bit. So last year... I did an episode about serial killer Israel Keys. And in the episode, I kind of told you guys that the FBI thinks that Israel Keys has at least 11 victims. And all but two are completely unidentified. So the FBI kind of put it out there that if you have a missing loved one, and they were in the states that Israel Keys was thought to be in at the time to contact the FBI to either rule them out or look into it further. Well, I came upon 
a post about Lauren Spear on Reddit. And the person that connected Lauren to Israel Keys, user Very Spooky Ghost, they did a hell of a job. So what I'm going to do is kind of summarize the information they put on here. So this is all them. This is their credit. They fucking busted their ass finding this information. But this is exactly what I was looking for when I did that episode. So kind of a little background on Lauren. On the night of June 3rd, 2011... Indiana University student Lauren Spear disappeared from Bloomington, Indiana. Over 10 years later, with nobody recovered, she remains one of the most notorious missing persons cases in U.S. history. There was crazy searches for this girl back when she went missing. She was last seen drunk and disappeared between 3 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. She was around a host of roommates and friends who all later became suspects. Detectives landed on two theories, an overdose that friends covered up or a stranger abduction. So very spooky ghost does kind of like do this little disclaimer that says, I'm not going to say that Israel Keys actually did it, but I am going to say he should be considered a serious suspect in this disappearance. And after reading everything they wrote, I am going to have to kind of agree. So keep your mind open but remain skeptical and uh, let me know what you think. You can email me at vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com or you can go to the Instagram and search vanishedinthevalleyathena. I think it's a solid fucking theory. So this is a summary of evidence directly tying serial killer Israel Keys to Lauren's disappearance. Israel Keys was in Indiana on the night of Lauren's disappearance. Keys is unaccounted for for about 12 to 14 hours on the night of Lauren's disappearance and operated on a tight timeline similar to its other crimes. Keys had likely scouted Bloomington three years prior, back in 2007, in order to bury one of his infamous kill kits and get a feel for the area. In 2007, Key's rental mileage is the exact amount of mileage to drive around Bloomington and surrounding forests before returning to Fort Wayne and his mother's house. Bloomington is only three hours away from his mom's house, so it's kind of similar to other crime scenes that are close to the locations Key's frequented. Key's involvement perfectly explains why Lauren's body was never found. Lauren was Key's preferred victim type, short, petite, and intoxicated enough to be easily controlled. Keys never booked a hotel in Chicago. So people are kind of just wondering where was he for that 12 to 14 hours before going on the Indiana toll road sometime in the morning. Why did he wait 12 to 14 hours to make a three-hour drive to his mom's house? Even on the tightest timeline, Keys had two hours to get his kill kit and drive the short distance into town to spot Lauren. He likely had much more time in reality. Only five days after Lauren's disappearance, Keys was in Vermont abducting and murdering Bill and Lorraine Courier. That is his only known victims. Police found three handguns in a buried cache that Keys led police to. Keys admits to stashing two guns after Lauren and the Courier's disappearance. One gun for killing the couriers, and one gun already stashed, and one gun for maybe an unknown crime, i.e. Lauren. Keyes describes being amped up even more than usual following the murder of the couriers. 
This resulted in him making extremely sloppy and uncharacteristic mistakes during the crime, like abandoning their bodies in a basement. Killing Lauren only days before him would explain this sudden amped up state and his sloppiness. There are all these like interviews he had with the FBI after he was caught and he basically says that he would get super amped up after one of his abduction, rape, torture, murder things. So that definitely plays in. Keyes constantly discussed his cases suddenly getting huge media attention after Lauren and the Courier crime spree. The FBI seriously doubted that this publicity was just from the Courier case, as the Courier disappearance was a big story in Vermont, but not really getting national attention. Instead, it seems clear the FBI believes Lauren's case that gave Keyes so much attention. When Keyes was directly questioned by the FBI, he had a similar reaction when he was confronted about a confirmed case. So, like I said, I profiled Israel Keyes last year. It's, uh, he's actually fucking terrifying. So, in case you're not familiar with him, what he would do is bury kill kits all over the country with guns, money, disguises, then he would fly into one city, rent a car, and then drive like a thousand miles and randomly pick a victim. He did like to abduct people from ranch style homes because he knew the layout. And apparently the FBI suspect that he has killed people like in national parks, federal parks, stuff like that, and gotten rid of their bodies out there in the middle of nowhere. Very spooky ghost. Then goes on to kind of explain the connection Israel Keys had with Bloomington, Indiana. They say Keys gets there about three years before Lauren disappears. On December 5th, 2007, Israel Keys flew from his home in Alaska to Seattle. There he picked up his daughter and a handgun from a friend. Keys then went with his daughter and his girlfriend to visit his mom in Harlan, Indiana. He would be in Indiana until December 15th. On December 8th through the 10th, Keyes rented a car in Fort Wayne and disappeared alone for several days. So like I was saying earlier, he actually liked to bury kill kits and stashes, even murder his victims on family trips. He is super fucking crazy. Him taking a gun on this trip is a huge red flag. When he returned to the car, he racked up over 537 miles in two days. A round trip from Fort Wayne to Bloomington is 400 miles. Driving around in Bloomington into Brown County, a 50-mile trip to Hosier National Forest accounts for the remaining 100 miles. So, not only on this trip is there ample time to bury a gun, get his whole kill head together, but get a feel for the whole college town and get the lay of the land. Coming out of Israel's own mouth, he does confirm that he flew into Chicago only the evening of Lauren's disappearance. It does seem he would have time to rent a car on June 2nd, so let's presume he arrived at the absolute latest at 10 p.m. He was supposed to go to his mom's house in Harlan, Indiana, only three hours away, but he didn't arrive until June 3rd in the afternoon. So like I said earlier, that's going to give him a window of 12 to 14 hours to commit this crime. He didn't get a hotel, and he's completely unaccounted for during the entire night and morning hours until being back on the Indiana toll road. 
So another little aspect that this poster brings up is lying in wait, which is something he likely did a lot of times. Um, he would set himself up and wait for a suitable victim to come by. And check this out. 4.30 a.m., a drunk Lauren was reportedly last seen heading south on College Ave. Even under the tightest timeline, with Keys arriving at 10 p.m. in Chicago, he still easily had two hours to get his kill kit and lie in wait. Furthermore, many people have speculated on how Lauren could have disappeared in a busier area of Bloomington. Israel Keys typically lied in wait in areas that were populated enough to give him a pick of targets, but rural enough for a quick escape. Typically, he hunted campgrounds and forests, like I was saying earlier. But with his victim, Deborah Feldman, he abducted her from a populated urban area. With his victim, Samantha Cohen, he had no real qualms about abducting her in a busy public area. I mean, he took this girl and there was actually people around in the parking lots. He robbed and kidnapped her from that little coffee kiosk. And there was literally cars passing by in full view of the blatant kidnapping. He managed to easily control Samantha in this car, then killed her in a secondary location. So Bloomington is a pretty easy getaway area. Go a few blocks from College Ave and you immediately hit a sporadic rural residential area, which then becomes forest and farmland. I mean, and that's just like, she could be anywhere. So like we were saying, she was heavily intoxicated and was walking home alone barefoot. She's 4'11 and 95 pounds, which like I said, is Key's preferred victim. He did kill a variety of people, crossing racial lines several times, and even men. But he openly admitted he liked petite women. Police believe this about Keyes wanting to be able to overwhelmingly control his victim quickly. And an intoxicated Lauren is the best target. So once he targets her, he controls her, subdues her quickly. And controlling a drunk, tiny little Lauren is really not going to be hard for him because he's a big guy. He's athletic. So following the possible abduction murder of Lauren, Israel would then head back northwest to Chicago because in late morning, June 3rd, 2011, about six to eight hours following Lauren's disappearance, we know for a fact that Keyes went through three toll gates on Indiana Toll Road. He arrived at his mom's house in Harlan, Indiana on the off of June 3rd. So it's once again worth repeating that Israel Keys always worked on a tight timeline for his crimes and always wanted to make his whereabouts known miles away from the crime. So why else would you go through three toll gates once you're on a murder spree? So according to the FBI, after a tip from a Bloomington detective, the, the FBI decides to question Keys directly about Lauren. Typically, Israel Keys was cocky, confident, laughing at all of his exploits, and generally lied to protect his friends and girlfriends who unwittingly aided him and paid for his zigzag murder trips. He always remained in control of the FBI interviews, except for two times. Once, when he was asked about Deborah Feldman, when he saw the photo, he became agitated and just said, I'm just not going to talk about it. He had previously denied other cases when they were unconnected, but this case seemed quite different. 
He never said that he didn't do it, so he wasn't denying involvement. He just wasn't going to talk about it. Except he later denied involvement repeatedly and denied killing her. The FBI today considers Deborah Feldman a confirmed victim of Israel Keys. This did happen again when Bloomington detectives asked the FBI to question Keys about Lauren's case. Details are sparse, but detectives have confirmed that when shown Lauren's photograph, Keys had a similar reaction to when he was shown the Deborah Feldman photo. One detective described that Keys laughed and then said, That's how hard it's going to be for you guys to figure out, referring to his other cases or the Lauren case. So that may be one more case now solved. I don't know. I'm sure that uh, the FBI is looking into it if they think it is a viable lead. But that still means what? There's eight other people unidentified from Israel Keys zigzagging his way across the country on his murder spree. So like I said in the other episode, if you have a loved one missing from like 2007 to 2012, I would definitely look at the FBI's timeline of when and where Israel Keys was because that motherfucker was on the loose and he was a danger, like an actual danger menace to any normal human just trying to live their life. All fucked up. He scares the shit out of me. (laughs) So guys, that is about it for this week. I just want to say uh, it is a late episode. I think Avenish in the Valley is actually switching to Fridays. So technically we're not late. <laughs> Maybe once my foot is better, we won't always be on Fridays. But for now, you'll find me Fridays. New episodes of Vanished in the Valley. Woo fucking who. So as I always tell you guys, be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao.